0: Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Elaine Lowe, uh, who is a staff writer at The Ankler uh, and the author of the Strike Geist newsletter, amongst other you know, duties at The Ankler. Uh, I, I really enjoyed reading Strike Geist during the recent WGA strikes because it was, uh, you know, on on the ground, on the front lines, reporting from the uh, from the picket lines and everything else. It was a slightly more tempered version of what we were hearing on Twitter, uh, which, you know, would tend to get a little heated and crazy sometimes. But it was uh, it was great to have that firsthand point of view. Uh, Elaine, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, thanks for being a strike geist reader. It's uh, been a long uh, 149 days
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not over yet. We still got SAG after strike, uh, but we're we're getting there. All right, so so the WGA deal uh, is is done-ish. It still has to be ratified by the members and and everything, but you know, we're, we it looks like we've got a pretty good deal. People seem happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's you know there's the standard percent raises and all that sort of stuff. But there there were three big Pretty interesting and new things uh, that got hammered out during this conversation uh, that I think are worth diving into and worth explaining to folks who didn't uh, who either didn't know what was at stake or or, or kind of confused by some of uh, the issues that have hand- come down. And uh, let's let's take a look at them. So the first is writers rooms. Uh, writers rooms were a big uh, point of contention in the strike. The the um, writers wanted more guaranteed spots for uh, writers on TV shows. The studio said, no, this is ridiculous. You don't need that. Um, what uh, what was the deal that was made? And what were what were they fighting over, really? Because I think that's a I think that's a key thing for folks to understand uh, when they're looking at the the resolution here is what did the, what were the writers actually really after?
1: I mean, it all comes down to the sustainability of the profession, right? Like time and again, when I was out on the picket lines and even well before the strike, the thing that I would hear from writers is it's hard for writing, for TV writing or film writing to be a sustainable profession anymore. Um, I mean, and you sort of add on top of that the the cost of living in a city like L.A. or New York, uh, you know, that has additional challenges. But you, the main disruptor has been the streaming economy, because before... Uh, What, like a a broadcast sitcom would go 22, 24 episodes on CBS or NBC or ABC, and and you could make a whole meal out of that. That was part of your career. That was a year long job. Nowadays, there are so many streaming shows. I mean, we live in the era of peak TV where there are literally what, like, I think 600 shows, uh, 600 new scripted shows this past year. But how many of those are small streaming shows that are like six, eight, ten episodes? And so I'd hear from folks that say, you know, well, I would do a six episode series and then it would be months and months between work. And these rooms too, these writers rooms would get smaller and smaller instead of having, you know, whatever, 10, 15 writers in a room. Um, there's something uh, that the writers hate called mini rooms, which is, you know, the, the studios would try and get two or three writers a room to like break open a whole season and 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 essentially it's the same labor issue that impacts so many other industries right it's that uh, companies try to get more out of folks for less and i think that's something that you know no matter what industry you're in i think it's just sort of a recurring pressure and that's a thing that writers felt uh, all across town all across the country uh and and so the staffing minimums was really a way to try and codify um you know that part of the profession uh to 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 make sure that writing is still a full-time job in their view.
0: And uh and there and there are like again actual codified numbers here. What were the what were the gains that the uh the writers got?
1: Yeah, so the writers were initially looking for uh I think a minimum staff of about 6 writers. Um, and what they uh ultimately well what they initially were told, uh, according to the guild, is that the, the AMPDP, which is the negotiating unit which represents studios from Disney to Netflix, um, you know, rejected those proposals, didn't make a counter. Ultimately, uh between May and September, uh what the agreement ultimately was was that uh there would be a minimum of three writers, and let me make sure I have this right. Um it's at least three writers on a series of six episodes or fewer, five writers on shows that are seven to 12 episodes, and at least six writers on shows that are at least 13 episodes long. So, you know, they, they went a long way to getting some kind of codification of that.
0: And there was, I, I during the strike, there was some chatter uh, among showrunners, some of, the, some of whom write whole seasons by themselves, right? So guys like Taylor Sheridan said, well, I don't need six writers on Yellowstone. I do it all myself uh, or White Lotus, right? As another yeah. show that is run uh, by a guy, who writes it all and, th- and that's, and that's it. And uh, they said, well, we don't need writer's rooms. We don't want writer's rooms. You know, why are we fighting about this? Why are we fighting for this? And the counter to that, which I think is, is true and smart is that, you know, uh, the first time showrunners are not going to have the leverage to say, well, uh, I would like to have six writers on my show, you know, they're going to be pressured to to go the Sheridan route, right? Was yeah. I mean, that was like the kind of breakdown, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, we had uh, Adam Conover who, you know, he ran the show Adam Ruins Everything and uh, is also a WGA negotiating committee member on on our own podcast yesterday. And he broke it down for us. He, you know, told us like, hey, like as a showrunner, as a first time showrunner, I didn't have that power. I didn't have I wasn't given a budget. I was just told here you can hire X number of writers um and that's frequently and i think there's sort of a little bit of discrepancy too like when i think folks outside of the industry are looking in because when you think of like a showrunner maybe you're thinking of like a ryan murphy or a shonda rhimes people who have you know had really prolific careers who have reached a point in their career where there's a a great deal of creative control but a lot of folks are first-time showrunners and you know feel that they have to be able to accommodate um their bosses which i mean i think again is is true of any kind of industry when you're you know even sort of slowly coming into a position where there's more decision making power um and 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 so you know that's why these this sort of codification exists but i i think there is also um built in adam was telling us yesterday an exemption for i think it's if there is a contract that says this person is going to write all eight episodes then they'll be able to do that so there is still an exemption for for the taylor sheridans for the folks who want to be the sole uh creator
0: yeah and there and i think some of those shows are getting grandfathered in too right like it's you know if they're uh if they were already one one man shows and so be it all right uh the 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 next big issue uh here that is that is pretty interesting is the performance-based residuals on the streaming originals um I I I I was getting questions from friends who were asking me to break it down for them, and frankly I didn't know the answer to a few of them. So I'm I'm hoping you might be able to help me out here and make it for to everybody else. <laughs> okay. Alright, so all right, so for instance, um uh there there is a there's a all right, just to set the stage for everybody, there's a threshold if if a show is watched by uh I think it's twenty percent or more mm-hmm. of the uh the subscribers over the first three months of release. Um, or I guess over any subsequent three months, um, mm-hmm. that there will be a bonus. Uh, for let me see, what are the numbers here? The it's bonus up to fifty
1: percent be... of the fixed domestic and foreign residuals. So, um, okay. you know, the bonus for let's see, uh, in in the twenty twenty three year would be like about over nine thousand dollars for. A half-hour episode about sixteen thousand dollars for a one-hour episode and then uh over forty thousand for a streaming feature that's over 30 million dollars in budget um okay and this is really you know my understanding is the the viewership-based streaming residual is something to counter the fact that streaming residuals compared to residuals for a broadcast tv show again it's like it's the difference between that big 22 24 episode cbs sitcom Versus the, you know, like six episode Netflix limited series or something um, where writers would tell me, you know, I used to be able, I've had so many writers tell me I used to be able to live off of residuals and now it's impossible. And I'm doing the same amount of work. It's just that the residuals are lower. Um, So the viewership based residual is, is designed to, to sort of offer a success based bonus, Um, you know, like, because again, I think we've also read media reports of huge streaming hits where maybe we don't realize uh, you know just how 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 much of a, a difference in compensation there is from the expectation um, for for writers and cast
0: well let me ask all right so uh, specifically the question i had was mm-hmm. all right so writers writers will see receive a bonus you know between 9000 and 16000 or something like that for mm-hmm. tv episodes is it is it the credited writer on an episode of tv like every credit they get they will get a bonus like that because i or I guess is it like the whole like, room you mean right is it is it like does the whole room get the nine thousand dollar bonus and then it's split three ways or five ways or whatever per episode i mean i guess i guess that would be my 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 question here is exactly how that payout happens if it goes to the credited writer or and also like again specifically we're talking there the the way it's broken down in the the contract is by episodes mm-hmm. but My understanding is that the streamers just kind of get the numbers for the whole season. Like we have here's here's this first season of, you know, Wednesday or whatever. Yeah. Or uh, squid games like it. But it, I, I don't think they're broken down necessarily by episode. Right. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe this is something we still need to figure out. I was going to
1: say, I think I, I think this is something I can't tell you. I'm not going to pretend to know. uh I, All I have <laughs> is the language in the contract and what Adam was telling us yesterday. So I don't I don't think we know all the details of that yet. But okay. you also alluded to something else, which was the, the, the data transparency part of it. Right. Which yes, the writers um you know got some of of what they were asking for i think it was uh that there's the streamers will release i think sort of the total number of hours watched which you know still doesn't provide you the kind of data that i think they have internally where they're able they're able obviously to like they have a fire hose of data they're able to slice mm-hmm. and dice it any which way they want Um, But it's it's something it's a step in that direction. And again, talking to Adam yesterday, uh, he saw it as a positive development because I think the idea is to then build on that progress in subsequent contracts. Um, Because when I talk to showrunners, one of their issues when writing for streaming shows is sometimes depending on which streamer and every streamer is different every streamer counts a view differently um, and every streamer releases different sl- segments of information to their showrunners. So it's like some of them may get engagement uh, metrics. Some of them may get feel like they get nothing at all. Some of them have told me, oh, they wouldn't give me exact viewership data, but they showed me how my show performed uh, in comparison to a different popular show on the service. So, um, you know, this is sort of a step uh, toward. Figuring out in 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 lieu of sort of the old fashioned like broadcast Nielsen data, um, you know how things are doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm, I, I am curious to see how much of that data actually comes out and and what we see, and and I, I believe there was some agreement between the union and the, um, the AMPTP that the data would be kept confidential ish. Right. I mean, I yeah, that I was one of the enough.
1: initial things, and that one, like I said, I'd have to go and refer to the contract too. I, I, I honestly, like, I think we're all still sort of digesting the the contract terms here, and I, and I, and I'm expecting that things will slowly be spelled out for us as they're actually implemented.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. It's uh, it's it's crazy. Uh, I, and I, I'm also, uh, I mean, I, I have you heard from any of the folks on the actor side how they they feel about this? Because this is a big ask for them as well. They are they're looking for. Um, you know, some, something like, I think it was 2% of revenue from streamers for, uh, a success-based, um, residual, uh, Yeah, which...
1: and that's, and that's, like, sort of a different ask, but, uh, you know, I, I'll be very interested to see how much of a precedent and how much of, I guess, an advantage this gives, um, SAG-AFTRA as they're going into their negotiations, which restart on Monday on the 2nd, um... Wait, monday is the second right it starts on it starts yeah. in early october um yeah it's coming up here yeah, yeah no it's been a long four and a half months <laughs> um but but it's like you know with with ai protections right it's like they are also looking for ai protections and they're also looking for some kind of like sort of similar success-based revenue shares last residual basically a, a, a participation in that profit right um but the language is going to be something different because you know writers are are dealing with say ai in in terms of the written word and then sag aftra is dealing with ai in in terms of like performance capture and you know scanning right. background actors so it's like same concept but the implementation and the execution of that i think is going to be really um different uh but yeah i think yeah. It, i think it sets something something of like a broad philosophical template if nothing else
0: Well, let's talk about AI because AI is the other, is the third of the big uh, new things. I mean, how, how what what agreement did the studios and the writers come to on how AI can be used, you know, as a tool versus uh, as a replacement? Because I know that's what the writers were worried about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to say first off, I personally, and maybe this was just naive of me, was really surprised at how much of an issue AI became on the picket lines, given that going in it's not something that i traditionally heard writers have an issue with um but i think it really came to the fore and i mean it's such a fast-moving technology like i'll tell you i've i've seen and heard like ai software and this is more on the performer side but it can like replicate morgan freeman's voice so it makes morgan freeman sound like he's speaking in fluent spanish as opposed to like having another actor dub over so it's like the technology is there in many different ways um but i was really surprised to see how how many people had like ai related picket signs um but i guess that's also a factor of 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 just it's sort of being like an easily digestible concept um outside of hollywood as well uh but essentially what the writers uh agreed upon was that uh ai can't write or rewi- rewrite for them um it can't produce source material And studios can't force writers, essentially, to use AI software like ChatGPT or something. Um, Although if both the studio and the writer decide together to use, um, you know, AI software, they can do that. Uh, And then there's also a last bit on, on training data, which, again, talking to Adam Conover yesterday, he said it's basically the site of a future battle. Because the guild, you know, quote unquote, reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writer's material to train AI is prohibited by this minimum basic agreement or other law, which, I mean, is sort of like I was trying to unpack that language a little bit yesterday. And I I think basically it's just sort of like setting the tone for, you know, we have the right to challenge this if we feel Mm -hmm. like there's uh, exploitative training was my sense.
0: Yeah, listening, listening to him yesterday on your on your podcast, the, what uh, what it sounded like to me was if you do this wrong, we're going to sue you. Yeah, um, that 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 kind of that that kind of language, which is always, you know, that that is not necessarily ideal. If you're in a labor situation, you don't want to be like, well, we're going to have to, you know, get the get the courts on you. Um, mm-hmm. But it it's it is a fascinating it's a fascinating topic for the reason you mentioned. I mean, you know, the, the actors are worried about people putting their faces on weird things in, yeah. in movies and you know i think for good reason uh, and the writers you know uh, it's interesting talking to the writers because half of them are like that the ai is never going to be good enough to do what we do and the other half are like terminator is here and we have to <laughs> we have to send john connor back to kill ChatGPT pt now like it's you know it's wild yeah
1: um i, I and i, I think the truth is basically, as with all emerging technology, like ultimately we'll have to find a way to live with it. Right. It's like it's AI isn't going anywhere. AI is already used in so many different parts of the business. Um, I mean, gosh, it's like even even outside of Hollywood, it's like I see AI creeping up and I've I've said this before and this is so boring. But like, you know, back when I used to be a stock market reporter writing earnings reports, at some point there was automated writing technology, there was an AI that was introduced that could just pluck like, oh, did they beat on earnings? Did they miss on earnings? And being a very young 20 something reporter at the time, I was like, oh, no, that's my whole job. Like this thing could be (laughs) this thing's going to replace me. But but also, you know, it didn't because there's still the human element where it's like you can add context to things you can react in ways that the AI can't like it's what it's doing is it's it's feasting on the available information, but it, there are many, many human elements which I think will. It'll, it, so there's a long way to go before it can replicate those. I mean, of course, I say this now and watch tomorrow AI is writing my Strike Guys newsletter. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, the the AI podcast is going to be great. Um, the uh, <laughs> the well, and, and the the it's funny you mentioned the digesting the news because like you know one of the things that we're seeing with the the language models is when they start scraping the web for everything, th- these models all get much dumber mm. because there's so much bad information out there. I mean, mm. there's just, there's just endless reams of bad information, which in turn, like makes me think of the writers a little bit because there are a lot of bad scripts out there as well. And if you just throw,
1: do so you throw the kitchen sink sc- at it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> you throw the you throw a million scripts in there. Uh, you know, 999,000 of them are bad already. So like, is that the, the sort of thing that you're, you're going to want to come out? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Um, all right, so let's let's just quickly. Uh, what else? What else uh, came out of the the strike? What else did the writers get? What else did the the studios get? What are we What are we looking at here for uh, the rest of the? Well, you know, the guild strike?
1: touted this as a quote unquote exceptional deal, which I think like set the bar really high <clears throat> because it, it was such a, a protracted battle. Um, but but you know, the thing that they said was we really got wins for every segment of the membership, and I mean it seems like they got a great deal of what they were asking for. There were things for, you know, screenwriters, for film writers, basically second step payments, improved payment schedules. And then for writing teams, like, you know, TV writers who work in pairs, um, you know, are able to get uh, pension and health contributions um, that sort of represent, like, like that match each writer as a whole person rather than making them, like, split a fee, which is huge in terms of, um, you know, qualifying for health insurance and everything. So there were some significant things which are not, I think, like, big bold headlines to to folks who work outside of the industry but to folks here are are really significant increases um you know obviously they didn't get everything they were asking for but that's the nature of any negotiation um my sense is though that um the wins that the writers guild got were far more than i think folks were initially thinking they would achieve back in may there was a lot yeah. of skepticism about whether the strike would work, about whether having a strike that ran this long would be effective, um, and I think the result speaks for itself.
0: Well, let's uh, so let's bring this to the the other thing I really wanted to talk to you about was uh, how I, it it this strike felt different from the last strike in back in oh seven oh eight. Um, this this felt like a much different. The vibe was different. The vibe was different. Uh, and I I'm curious how um, how the mood on uh both the picket lines and on social media kind of influenced that because i i really I really do think that we uh saw a real sea change here in how the writers uh behaved and reacted and supported each other um in part because of just the the kind of omnipresent uh ever ever awake ever aware nature of Twitter yeah Uh, and you know TikTok and whatever else but like really twitter that's where the right it's where writers hang out
1: twitter where that we all many of us thought we would abandon (laughs) in the spring and uh then suddenly became the place to be (laughs)
0: um
1: yeah i mean listen the there was no there was no similar thing in 07 08 by all accounts when i talk to folks they tell me when i've spoken to people who are veterans of you know two three different strikes they're saying, OK, last time around, all the information we were getting were from the trades. We had to sort of just accept whatever information was coming to us. And we had to, you know, fact check things by word of mouth or, or share information by word of mouth. And now there's a much more immediate way to do that. And of course, like, let's also accept that there's some bad information that goes around on any social media platform. It's not all accurate, but it definitely allowed them to talk to each other in a way that I don't think they they had the last time around. Um, and also just sort of build on that voice. I mean, when you're talking about solidarity and when you're talking about social media, I think there's the question, right, of like, yeah, but like how reflective of real life is Twitter, which is a valid question because it's a self-selected group, right? Um, but uh, but there were there were so many writers who were just, I think, building on each other's voices there. That that it really did genuinely contribute to that sense of solidarity, and also contributed to their ability to to organize. Like when you're talking about them, the writers turned labor organizers these last few months. That became a real tool too, in terms of saying like, "This is the themed picket we're doing down at Netflix today," and like, "This is what who we would like to see turn out for it." Um, it became a very effective organizing tool, which I think was 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 a very effective like real world implementation of social media. And then when you're talking about solidarity, so sort of a thing that I think I think people were grappling with at the beginning was like how seriously do we take a bunch of writers and then actors who are on strike, right? Like are they serious people? And and ultimately um you know, I I think they really showed that they were serious about organizing. They got a lot of support from from AYATSi, which represents, you know, like 150,000 craftspeople and crew members and from the Teamsters who really showed up and showed out. And again, talking to veterans of the last strike, my impression I didn't cover the last strike, but my impression was that. They felt sometimes more alone. The writers felt a little bit more alone in 07, 08, and didn't necessarily feel that cross union as as you know as deep of an extent of that cross union solidarity that they feel now. Um, so that really bolstered them. And then, of course, when the SAG-AFTRA strike started, having 160,000 performers um, also on the picket lines is is really going to help you fortify your cause.
0: Yeah uh the 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 one the one place where i feel like you saw solidarity kick in uh most uh, effectively really came toward the end when mm-hmm. Drew Barrymore said she's bringing her show back and Bill Maher like and the the talk is coming back and i i look maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm misreading things again because i spend most of my time on twitter instead of you know on on the lines but the the sense i got was that the ability to pressure those shows into Pulling out and shutting back down again, and saying we're going to come back afterwards, felt it felt like the push that was needed, that the studios needed to really be like, okay, this is serious. We got to end this. I mean, like that—that was a that it 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 felt very conspicuous. And maybe this was going to happen anyway, Mm -hmm. but it felt very conspicuous to to have like a week later, you know, uh, the CEOs in the room with the WGA,
1: right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And I hadn't really thought about it that way. But yeah, I think that's fair because I you know, you had speaking of productions that were shut down throughout the summer, any kind of production, even before the sang after strike started, you had writers picketing, you know, in New York and in L.A. and shutting down most every production that they could to the point where I would get these weekly updates from Film L.A., which is um, the L.A. County's uh, official film office. And, you know, that number kept dwindling down until it was like, there are no scripted TV series that have permits to film this week. And it was just that flat line for many, many months. Um, and that didn't include, you know, like reality and like indie shows and things like that. But um, but yeah, like any anything union had been shut down. Um and and so, again, this comes back to the writers being very effective at organizing and being very effective at 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 sort of, you know, uh, deciding on a target and saying, OK, this is the production we're going to pick it. And this is the one that we're going to, um, you know, shut down today. And, and you know, the Teamsters respected and didn't cross picket lines, IATSE, Um And so when it came to the talk shows, we were already what, like in, in fall, like in the beginning of September, where the pressure was on. Right, and I've talked about this before, and and you know, sorry to sound like a broken record. If anybody's heard me say this before, but like Labor Day weekend was really an inflection point, I think, because there was the idea that ah, like it's a summer strike, like it'll be over, we'll have figured everything out by September, and then Labor Day rolled around, and that didn't happen, and I think people got a little nervous, and anxiety levels really started rising, and and then you started hearing things from the studio side of you know, well, if if writers' rooms don't go back in. By, like, October, you know, we can't go back into production until at least January because everybody knows November and December are dead zones in Hollywood and there's just not a lot of production or anything else going on then. Um, and so I think people were really looking out at the calendar and saying, OK, we, we really only have, like, what, like six to eight weeks or something after Labor Day to, to figure everything out and to try and, like, get the Hollywood machine back in gear. Um So, yeah, there there was like a heightened sense of anxiety, too. And, you know, that's not to say that the writers weren't feeling the pressure. Like I've heard from so many writers and actors and crew people who have have suffered an immense financial hardship over these last few months. And many of them support the strike. Um, Many of them also note just how difficult it's been to the point where some of them are we're talking about leaving L.A., um, you know, we're talking about trying to scrape, uh, you know, side hustles together, trying to figure out what work they could do in the interim because they just didn't know when, when the town was going to be back in business. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think shutting down the talk shows or at least, you know, applying enough pressure on the talk show hosts to walk back, um, restarting production, um, you know, was a sign that they were, they still continued to be very serious and, and not just about, uh you know, scripted TV, but about these talk shows, which, you know, each of them had, you know, a handful, maybe like one to three WGA writers, because these were all, you know, mostly WGA signatory shows, which meant that mm-hmm. the the hosts as SAG-AFTRA members were able to, um you know, sort of within their right, go back on, into production, but the the writers were on strike.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... uh. It's interesting. So, uh, all right, we still have one strike uh, goes on. Uh, as we mentioned, SAG, AFTRA, and AMPTP getting back in the room on Monday, October 2nd. Uh, what, what is the what's the vibe like in terms of where that that strike is? Do we do do folks think that we're it, that that will get wrapped up pretty quickly here and you'll get production back back in the swing of things in November, December? Or, or is is are this two sides still too far apart?
1: Uh, I think that's the hope, right, that they'll be able to resolve this quickly enough. I mean, I, I the two sides haven't spoken in months, so it's hard to say where they'll be once they get back into the room. But I, I think it would be safe to say that sag is likely feeling, um, you know, a little more confidence going in, given the gains that the writers managed to achieve. Uh, and, you know, the writers have largely been in a hugely celebratory mood. Um, you know, I went I went and visited a couple of the bars where these impromptu, spontaneous celebrations were happening Sunday night after it was announced that there was a deal like we hadn't even seen what the deal was. But it was like, <laughs> there's a deal. And like people immediately just like flooded this one bar in North Hollywood. And I stopped by and, you know, there was just a sea of writers uh, with drinks in hand. Occasionally you would just hear random cheers go up in different parts of the crowd like they were just happy that there was a deal and they trusted that the guild when the guild said it was exceptional they were basically like yeah we, we trust that it is even though it was would be another two days before they actually saw the deal language. So I mean I think that probably gives SAG a lot of you know confidence.
0: Yeah. Um all right well that was everything I wanted to ask what do you, what what do you think folks should know about either the deal or the strike or anything else going on in uh, the business of Hollywood right now I always like to close these interviews by asking what I should have asked so what what should have I what should I have asked what do people need to know
1: Oh I think I've blathered on long enough but <laughs> but uh I mean there's still 160,000 people out on strike right I mean I think I don't know there's there's this huge exhale of relief that the writers guild strike is is over and that there's a deal that uh, you know the writers seem happy with and and are you know they're technically they were technically back to work yesterday the strike ended at midnight on Tuesday night. Um, But yeah there's still 160,000 people on strike and and uh, I think the conventional wisdom is that it should hopefully wrap up soon but you never know.
0: Yeah uh all right, so Strike Geist continues. go sign up uh it's free it's at the ankler um and you should sign up for everything at the ankler too you should be a p- paying subscriber as i am uh yay but uh, <laughs> but if you if you aren't and you just want to taste uh, Strike strikegeist is is still free right it is yeah it's mm-hmm. it's yep yeah, it it's, is still uh, free
1: so. and uh and Excellent. while sag after is negotiating their t v theatrical contract they've also authorized a video game strike so Who's to say if Strike Geist will have more to write about after?
0: It's the rolling strikes of 2023. We're in a real uh, labor movement a... here. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, my name is Sunny Bunch. I am culture editor at The Bulwark. Thanks again for joining us, uh, Elaine, from uh, The Ankler. Really, really great you. Yeah, thanks so much for you. having me. Um, I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then.